The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom, now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 63 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Realizing that if Lois Lane had been drawn to look like Terry Hatcher at her first appearance, there's no way Clark would have waited 60 years to put a ring on it. I'm Adam. (laughs) (laughs) And convinced that if ABC Network had Melissa Joan Hart starring in Sabrina the Teenage Witchblade in the 90s, that show would have still been running today. I'm Michael. <laughs> we had some zingers in the tank. Yes, we are back into our regular recording schedule, and we couldn't be happier about it. We're ready to have a rip-roaring time. And I've got a margarita ready, too, that I'm drinking as well to get <laughs> us back into this, the swing of things. It all seems very appropriate because this is a festive issue of Wizard. This is the annual Halloween issue, and we are excited to get into all those things, but it will not be on this episode. No, we are going to spread the Halloween cheer throughout this month. Month. And so we have a few different channels and avenues where you can get spooky with us. So, Michael, why don't you tell them about how they'll get to enjoy the Halloween costume contest? So, historically, we've done like a, a YouTube video where we've gone through each of the contestants and judged and given our opinions on it and read the captions and, and the little bylines created by Wizard. And Adam has a couple other tidbits of how he wants to roll this out this time. Yes, for those who don't recall, Michael is not Mr. Halloween, but I am the exact opposite. I live for this time of year. So I'll just add to the conversation about the annual Halloween costume contest. In addition to showing off the costumes that people sent in, there's also a section of this issue about how to do your own cosplay. It's a tutorial about creating a comic book costume. So that will be covered briefly in that video as well. But in addition to that, Wizard also included a very fun page that features a bunch of spooky stories from Halloween's gone by from various comic creators, people like, you know, Jim Shooter, Billy Tucci, Joe Madarera, and stuff like that. So we have recorded that. We are sharing those stories in addition to some of our own on the Retro Network 2022 Halloween special. So that will be a podcast that you can find on theretronetwork.com or in the Retro Network podcast feed where all of the hosts from the different shows on the network will be getting together and doing short segments that are Halloween-based and that's where you will find us. So something to look forward to as well, a little extra bonus content. And finally, don't forget that you can still get 20% off your entire order at HalloweenCostumes.com by visiting the RetroNetwork.com and clicking the banner ad on the site. They have a great selection of high-quality costumes in classic comic book styles for Batman, X-Men, Spider-Man, all the mans. <laughs> The Flash, and more. You can also look for the link in the description in this episode. Speaking of tricks and treats, it's time to find out what surprises await in the magic word section of issue 63. So we're going to open up Willie Lumpkin's Mailbag. Ooh, you can write a 
Yeah, so we have some great letters in the magic words. I feel like there was a drought of truly entertaining and wacky letters over the last few issues, but they have returned to form here. And the first letter is no exception. We have Dave Amiot from Painesville, Ohio, which I'd be curious to know if that is in fact the real name of his town because it fits the tone of his letter perfectly. He says, Dear Jim, I've been sitting here thinking about my latest failed relationship, looking through all the old letters she'd sent me. Yes, I kept them all. And I got to thinking, which is better? Comics or girls? This may seem like an absurd question, but think about it. Sure, comics don't tell you they love you, but they're always there for you, and they never break your heart and leave you a broken hollow shell of the man you once were. So which is it? <laughs> I don't know. Your pen pal girlfriend doesn't seem to be uh, too keen on you. It yeah. feels like there, sir. And Jim's response, girls. Uh, just in case you didn't get that, allow me to reiterate, girls. Now, once more with feeling, just to drive the point home, girls. True, comics may never dump you for a better looking geek, but girls are much better for companionship, conversation, beating a ping pong, tongue kissing, friendship, and just having someone to rely on. To say nothing of the fact that they can keep you warm at night. It really shouldn't even be a question. Get with the program there, pal. <laughs> I've been saying it for years, man. I've been saying it for years on this podcast. I know, but when a lot of people decided to leave comics for girls and then end up coming back to comics, why can't we all peacefully coexist? I, I guess I never did. I kept my comics and I kept dating girls and marrying girls. Uh, so I guess it's just a situation. Maybe I'm polyamorous. You know, I love my comics. I love the ladies. <laughs> Oh boy, uh, okay. So the Bunny Award this month goes to Matt Murchowski of Gurney, Illinois for his very 90s list of the most hated things. This feels right up my alley. Yes. I hate so many things. So many things. Dear Wizard, this is a list of things I hate. Everything on MTV except the music videos, stupid comic fans, who have no life, people who think that the X-Men is fantasy, try Stephen King's Dark Tower saga if you want real fantasy, turning Venom into a good guy, Trekkies, the Iron Man versus X-Men debate, oh yeah, and that Champagne Supernova song. How can you not like Oasis? Even I like Oasis, come on. So the wizard response says, you know, we did something kind of like this at an old job. Everyone posts lists of love on one wall and we'd post our list of hates on the opposite wall. Every year on January 1, we'd tear down the old list and put new ones up. It was a nice way to get some anger out at a socially acceptable way, pre-Twitter, apparently. Yeah, annually instead of hourly. <laughs> And we all got a good laugh at the same time. Personally, I hate everything on MTV, including the music videos. But I love stupid comic fans who have no life. <laughs> they keep me in business. And yes, Champagne Supernova sucks. Such serious, sour frog ass. <laughs> That's an alliteration right there. If I hear... One more person compare Oasis to the Beatles. I'm going to hit them in the mouth with a hockey stick. 
So any lists of love out there? All right, but our last letter here I find really entertaining and informative because this is answering a question I think a lot of people have, especially if you ever go back and read like Silver Age comics. It says, Dear Wizard People, what are the different colors of kryptonite? What does each one do to Superman? Are other super beings, Supergirl, Crypto, etc. affected by it? Chris Parker, Valley Mills, Texas. So yeah, kryptonite, what is it all about here? You know, the funny yeah. thing is about this, though, I, I was looking at this also before. Since the 90s, there have been newer iterations no of types of... Oh, yeah, there's there's different <laughs> kryptonites now. Yeah, there's there's more. How could they resist, I guess? Wow, okay. Well, this is what Jim has to say, and we're going to take turns reading this list. It says, sit down, this is going to take a while. Kryptonite has come in the following 11 varieties. Green, which can kill super-powered Kryptonians. Red, which is... The wild card, it has a random effect on Kryptonians, like turning Soupy into an eggplant, okay? <laughs> Missed that one. Gold, which permanently removes Kryptonian superpowers. White, which kills all plant life better than Ortho Weed Be Gone and at a fraction of the price. <laughs> Blue, which kills Bizarro life. Interesting. Silver, which is the cubic zirconia of kryptonite. <laughs> it turned out to be a hoax. That one feels like it would have been on your favorite home shopping network program. Limited edition. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you pulled the limited edition. I love that reference. The, the knife guy with limited edition. Okay, next up, Jewel, which amplifies the mental powers of Phantom Zone prisoners. Boy, that's useful. I'll take a six-pack. Bizarro Red, which affects normal humans as red kryptonite affects kryptonians. See Red. X Kryptonite, which gives humans superpowers. Okay. Magno Kryptonite, which magnetically attracts anything from Krypton and... Anti-Kryptonite, which affects non-superpowered Kryptonians as green Kryptonite affects superpowered Kryptonians. My head hurts. I can't even think about that. But there is no way that the writers were keeping track of any of these Kryptonites. It was literally, we need it for this story, put in a new Kryptonite. You know, they, they did not have a list to reference, I don't think. No, definitely not. Like all the different Batman, that like rainbow colored Batman costumes yeah. that they came out with. It was all the same time period. As for other super fill the blanks, Supergirl, Crypto, the Superdog, and Beppo, the Super Monkey, are Kryptonians, so they would be affected just like Superman would. Streaky, the Super Cat, and Comet, the Super Horse, are not Kryptonians, so you can treat them as human for effects. Now that all of that is said and done, disregard it all. Those are the old Kryptonite varieties. As of DC's 1986 The Man of Steel rewrite, the only kryptonite in the DC universe is green. The above list is for old time's sake only. Oh yeah, a special thanks goes out to DC's own bizarro number one, Scott Nibakin, and his crack research team of evil monkeys for their help in compiling the list. So there you go. More than you ever wanted to know about kryptonite. I know there's also black kryptonite. I assume that's from like Darkest Night or something. No, I think it actually, they they... they Featured is on Smallville at one point, too. Oh. Yeah, I don't know. Oh. Like, I think it, like, either temporarily removes his powers or, like, can transfer his powers or something. I don't know. And then there was another type of kryptonite that came out in the New 52 that they kind of retconned away. So the other funny thing that they established was, I think it's Infinite Crisis, that if you're on a different Earth, the kryptonite of, like, Earth-1 
doesn't affect a Kryptonian from Earth 2. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. That revelation actually feels like it would uh, make the headlines in the supervillain weekly news. So, Michael, you know what that means. It's time for... So, actually, before we go into the actual issue of Wizard News, I think there's actually some news in the comics world right now that we should probably talk about. Oh, okay. At the time of this recording, yesterday, the 30th anniversary issue of Harley Quinn came out and to celebrate her 30 years of being a comic book character. And I started thinking about this. And if you think about it, in the 90s, there was, you know, a couple of really significant characters that came out. Harley Quinn being one of them, Spawn being another. But, like, there's really not been that many characters that have become household names like Harley Quinn. And I started thinking about that. The only one I could think of really was Venom, right? Yeah, I mean, he's the one name, face, recognition. You see him, people say, oh, that's Venom. I would say of all the comic characters that were created in the 90s, Harley Quinn probably is number one. I'd say Venom is probably two. Spawn is probably number three of the comic book characters that are recognizable names 30 years later since 92. I think Deadpool now is just right under Harley Quinn. Yeah. So maybe Harley, Deadpool, Venom, you know, and then Spawn at the bottom because, yes, some people know him and remember the toys, but I don't know. Yeah, overall, though, your point is solid when you take a look at, yeah, there's not a lot of Sleepwalker and Darkhawk fans, you know, people clamoring for the new Warriors or whatever to make an appearance you know like so we will see how that all plays out ultimately but as of right now i mean the only one i could think that is poised to get that recognition is miguel o'hara spider-man 2099 once that movie hits people are gonna love him i'm assuming he's gonna be very popular yeah that's gonna be the next one that'll be a big one one, one that anyway i just wanted to like share that before i dive into the actual issue of news which let's start with our top story here This issue is another Gen 13 crossover. Last issue, we talked about the Batman team-up that never happened, which is super bummer to me. But this time, it's an adventure that actually made it to the shelves with Marvel's Spider-Man. Later on, there is a Gen 13 Fairchild crossover with Superman, right? Yep, yep. They had a little mini-series there. Steven Sapelis, our former co-host, actually sent me the promotional poster that hung up in comic book stores, so I have that here just waiting for some wall space. (laughs) This 48-page one-shot, written by Peter David and featuring art by Stuart Immonen, will find the Wildstorm teens joining forces with the Webhead without explanation for the merging of universes. According to editor Tom Brevoort, it's a story where you go in and simply have a good time. Okay, I'm on board already. I, I, don't, I don't mind that. As for why the crossover exists in the first place, Brevoort explains... Spidey Gen 13 is one of the most obvious crossovers in that Spidey is probably Marvel's flagship character right now and Gen 13 is Wildstorm's best-selling team book. Wizard also reports that more Wildstorm and Marvel crossovers like Wolverine and Deathblow and Spider-Man and Backlash 
will be on shelves in 1997. So, Adam, do you have any of these issues? Yeah, I definitely picked it up back in the day, although I will say it's kind of a throwaway story. It's very forgettable. I'm a much bigger fan of later on they do a Fantastic Four Gen 13 team-up, which is an awesome crossover. Ooh, Uh, I'd be interested in that one. Yeah, I think that one would be more up your alley. But in this one, because it really is just right into the action, as they said there, because Spider-Man and Gen 13 just run into each other at a rock concert while Spider-Man is being attacked by this new villainess, I guess you would call her, named Glider. And she basically looks like a Huntress and Nightwing... Had a baby? Basically, yeah. I mean, she could just, she could teleport and has some gadgets and, you know, a cape and all this stuff. And there's a child custody case that she's going through when she's out of costume, which really kind of comes to nothing. So uh, Peter David maybe threw a little bit too much into this story where all Ultimately, you're just kind of like, okay, they're after this MacGuffin, Jed 13 and Spider-Man are going to stop her. I don't know. So it's just not a crossover I really recommend. But sticking with Gen 13 news, Michael, it is revealed in this issue that the book's editor, Sarah Becker, will be a cast member on season five of MTV's The Real World. Now, do you remember watching this season? Were you checking out The Real World? Is this <laughs> after Judd Winnick? Yeah, this is after. He was season three when they were in San Francisco. Of course, yeah, Judd Winnick goes on to DC to great acclaim, does a lot of stuff. But no, she was on season five where they were set in Miami. And that was something I definitely was tuning in for. But she says here about the whole experience and talking about comics to her roommates. She says, quote, I introduced Joe, a roommate from Brooklyn, to Gen 13, and he's convinced that he's going to marry Caitlin Fairchild. And Flora, a roommate from Russia, is convinced that she is Caitlin. They were definitely not into comics till I got down there. <laughs> but what are your memories of anything about this season? I don't know. The Real World was one of those shows where it's very hit or miss for me, where certain seasons really landed, and then other ones I was just like not into at all. Yeah, I, I would say I'm the same because I was not watching every single season of The Real World. It wasn't the concept that excited me, and it was always like there'd be some hook. So like, you know, in season three, I remember, oh, this bad guy, Puck, he's a bad boy. What's this about? And then then seeing that Judd was like a cartoonist and I was like, oh, that's cool. And then, yeah, I skipped season four. But when this came around, because I was reading Gen 13 comics and I read that Sarah was going to be on it, I was like, I'm going to tune in. And then they started showing her like wearing Gen 13 shirts. There'd be posters and comics and different stuff on it. So I was just always waiting for the next piece of information about Gen 13 to maybe be spilled there. But the sad part is, Michael, I want to go back and revisit it. And on Paramount Plus, they do not have it. It ends at season season four and then it like jumps to season nine or something so i want to know what happened to those middle seasons the footage is just garbage and corrupted i mean maybe it's a technical issue but i have a different idea you know who i blame is jim lee yes i'm sure he's mixed up there's got to be some rights issues he wouldn't release it so that the images of gen 13 could be seen in various episodes what's going on over there jim why you gotta do this to me of course that's just a theory actually funny enough so at the college that i work for in the city we do an event uh every semester we we call it meet the pros and we try to bring in artists and writers and so on and so forth we have a very exciting um event going on this week on campus that i'm going to be filming and trying to record the audio for i'm not doing the interviewing Mm -hmm. we have a, a comic book artist who does so much stuff for marvel and dc and she does a lot with dc right now do you know who aletha martinez is i don't you know me I don't know the latest and greatest 
greatest in the industry. She does um so many books like like the Amazons. She's done a lot of like the new Wonder Woman characters and stuff like oh. that. It's very very cool. She's talking to our students, and we're excited. I'll, I'll definitely when we get the audio recorded and I cut it up a little bit, we'll we'll share it on our socials and, yeah. and stuff like that because it's a really neat thing that she's gonna be talking to a bunch of college kids who are aspiring artists and writers and comics and and talking to our our school so i wanted to just kind of share that and, and shout our program out because it's gonna be really neat it's a cool cool opportunity yeah that's fantastic so speaking of marvel veteran marvel comics writer and editor mark grunwald passed away from a heart attack on august 12th 1996 at the young age of 43 years old. Wow, that's kind of sad. Yeah. 43, jeez. Grunewald had long runs writing The Avengers, Captain America, Avengers West Coast, Iron Man, and had most recently coordinated the Marvel versus DC and Amalgam events at the time. He was also the driving force behind the handbook for the Marvel Universe series that profiled every Marvel character information that was used for the backside of the first two sets of Marvel Universe trading cards. I was just going to say, we haven't talked about trading cards in a while. It's true, but we'll get to some a little bit later in the episode. Grunewald received a touching tribute from Stan Lee himself, who said, Mark was that most valuable and creative executive, a virtual rock, steady, reliable, dependable, always there with an answer to a problem. A suggestion for how to make things better and a spirit of cooperation that was warm and as genuine as his smile itself. So, Adam, do you have any favorite Mark Grunewald comics? Well, obviously, it's Cap Wolf. You don't like Cap Wolf? <laughs> no, no. I have a couple of those comics. There's no way you can't pick them up. You've seen them back issue bin. I mean, it's just, it's comics being fun and ridiculous. But that's not my favorite Mark Grunewald work. That has to be Squadron Supreme. Oh. Even though they don't mention that in his list of credits, I just consider that a major oversight. I bought, like, the whole, like, Omnibus recently. That thing is tremendous yeah i like i have all the original issues plus i have a trade of like the later kind of sequel adventures that they did that's a good book yeah i agree yeah, yeah and i mean he didn't create the characters i actually have some of the original early appearances and avengers and stuff but he certainly defined the characters because for me squadron supreme is the closest that marvel ever got to Watchmen, at least in like that 80s 90s era where they got just like the issues that might ever arrive in a real world scenario of superheroes trying to fix everything you know what's funny like i'm surprised the mcu hasn't tapped that yet like you'd think instead of doing thunderbolts they would do squadron supreme because that would be something really interesting like as opposed to doing like the Eternals that they did. Well, I mean, isn't that the rumor going around right now that Henry Cavill is playing Hyperion? I mean, I've heard whispers of him playing that. Joe's been lobbying for him to play Wonder Man. <laughs> that wouldn't be bad either. Listen, if, if Marvel can get him to do Hyperion, that would be such a slap in the face to Warner Brothers. So hear me out here then. You know, as the Warner Brothers DC Extended Universe continues to crumble and they continue to shelve all these projects, imagine if all of the Justice League actors, okay, because obviously Squadron Supreme is the Marvel analog to the Justice League. What if all of those actors 
characters just jump ship to Marvel and start in a Squadron Supreme movie. <laughs> Could you imagine that? Holy cow. Oh, let's get a petition going, geeks. Come on. That would be wild. All right, but getting back to the news of the day, Peter David is interviewed about his new Supergirl book, which acts as a bit of a soft reboot for the Maid of Might, as they call her, as the shape-shifting being known as Matrix actually merges with a dying human named Linda Danvers and attempts to solve the mysteries of that girl's death as Supergirl, while also adjusting to life in the small town of Leesburg, pretending to be Linda Danvers. So there's a lot going on there. But what I find funny is when asked why he took this tact with the character for this whole concept, David explains, quote, I had trouble connecting on an emotional level with a character who is essentially a blob of protoplasm that is coincidentally in the shape of a human female. <laughs> So yes, obviously Matrix was a huge part of the whole Death of Superman era, and then, yeah, it was kind of like, eh, well, yeah, do you really connect with that? But Michael, you have told me in the past that you read all of this Supergirl series, so I want to find out why and what you thought, because I read quite a few issues as well in preparation for this episode. I'd like to trade notes. Okay, so basically what happened was, I was reading like the the you know death and return of Superman books and all those little tie-in stories, and there's one issue where Supergirl's on the cover, and and they show like the the Matrix kind of weird shape shifting thing, and I was like, what on earth is this? So I was forced. My, or I forced myself, I should say, to pick up all the Supergirl books to kind of understand wh where this came from, what this was all about, to understand what this one issue of Superman was all about. And that was the whole thing. And I really enjoyed it. I thought it was, you know, it was pretty cool. It's probably where I first really resonated, like a connection with Supergirl, because other than that, like the only real connections I had with her at the time was the Supergirl movie, which... Yeah, I mean, it's a movie that I have a deep personal affection for, but I recognize is pretty goofy. It's not necessarily the best representation of the character. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get in, go off on a real yeah. wild tangent, but it has good parts to it, but I really didn't know much about Supergirl up until that point. And then years and years later, Peter David was at Fourth World Comics, and I couldn't find which box those books, those issues were in. So I'm in fourth world and I'm like dying to meet him. And they have the, the collected trade and I grabbed it and had him sign that. <laughs> wow. And I never even opened the cover of it. I just have that signature in that book. <laughs> Just for him. Yeah, so now I never read it back in the day, but I definitely remember seeing the ad in Wizard, which was just like Supergirl's torso. She's wearing a flannel shirt. She's holding a skateboard to her chest. Flannel which is the cover shirt. of the trade, too. And yet, it, that is never an image you see in the comic. Linda Danvers is not a punk skateboard kid. It's very odd, like, that they would make that the image and then it has nothing at all to do with the series. The series itself is actually really dark and focuses on the occult, like... Linda was killed by, like, this demon guy who's her boyfriend, and he's, like, the leader of some group, and, yeah, yeah, I mean, it was just, it's much more of a horror movie than I would ever have expected. And, and I asked, you know, when I met Peter David, I asked him, like, was this your favorite story to write? And he literally said, like, I've written so many different characters, each one of them is, like, my children, and I couldn't pick a favorite, but he just said that he goes, I kind of went nuts with this story. <laughs> That's what he told me. He's like, I went nuts with it. 
I was like, I didn't care. They said, go crazy. Well, speaking of writers going crazy, Wizard decided to poll some of their AOL subscribers about the uh, storyline that was uh, going on a little bit too long, that maybe got a little too wild. So why don't you tell us about that, Michael? So Wizard polled their AOL users in their AOL chat rooms as to how they would like to see the fate of Ben Riley play out in the Marvel Universe with the question, if you were the editor of the Spider-Man books, how would you remove the Clone Saga? Beat him with a crowbar. It worked for the Joker and Jason Todd. <laughs> Option A, Ben Riley dies a heroic death as Spider-Man, which got 33% of the votes. Option B, Ben Riley retires as Spider-Man, but becomes a different costumed adventurer, also with 33% of the votes. Option C, Ben Riley is exposed as a clone, turns bad, and Spider-Man has to take him down. 18% of the votes. And option D, Ben Riley just goes away. <laughs> I feel like that's just the wizard staff. It's like, that was what we would do. They just hated him so much. So... Ben Riley is a really funny character. And like, I actually do like this character a lot. I like the Scarlet Spider. And in the recent, like, clone, there was another clone saga that happened again, you know, because everything that's old is new again. I guess it was probably around 2018, 2019. They did another sort of cloning situation. And a version of Ben Riley is the villain in it. Oh. And Peter Parker to take him down. So the storyline that they pitched here actually happened. 25 years later, it happened. Wizard also asked, would you like to see Mary Jane out of Peter Parker's life? I would say yes. Oh, wow. With only 13% saying yes, while the remaining 87% said no, with one fan explaining They've been through a horrible or ordeal together, and they deserve to share happiness together. Eh, I disagree. <laughs> happiness, happiness. Finally, 90% of fans agreed that Peter Parker should become a father, and as far as gender, 69% said they wanted to see a spider baby to be a girl. At least in one universe, these fans got their wish with Mayday Parker. One of my favorite spider characters bar none. And I'll tell you this, Michael, just calling back real quick to the Gen 13 Spider-Man crossover, that new character that I talked about, Glider, she actually, in her just plain physical appearance, looks like Mayday Parker. She's just kind of a smaller frame. She's got that red hair, the deep red that's almost like a bowl cut. I just thought that was so funny. Immediately when I saw her, I was like, what? They got Mayday Parker look here. What's up with that? Interesting. Why is red hair such a prominent color for female characters in comics? I think it's just got something to do with, number one, it makes a character look more unique because, you know, red hair, a little bit more rare. But also, I think of the era that comics really became a big deal, it, you wanted, like, colors that would pop off the page. So red hair is going to do that. I, I think I think that's the same reason, too. It's like just because the red hair is just something that stands out. I also think, like, of redheads of the era, I think somebody like Anne Margaret, who was in, like, Elvis movies and stuff, she had red hair, so I think maybe that was something. She even guest starred on the Flintstones as Anne Margrock. But I digress. 
On to our next story. Um, So Broadway Comics, this is interesting maybe just to me, but they were the publishing imprint owned by Saturday Night Live creator Lorne Michaels and run by former Marvel Valiant and Defiant Comics editor-in-chief Jim Shooter. At this time, it had been officially sold to Golden Books Family Entertainment, formerly Western Publishing, which in a full-circle twist of fate is fun because they were the original owners of the Turok, Magnus Robot Fighter, and Solar Man of the Adam characters that Shooter licensed to start his Valiant superhero line. Those characters, of course, at this point were being published by Acclaim, but I just find it fascinating because as soon as this happens, Broadway comics disappears. But it's not surprising that they would kind of fold because if you remember, I talked about one of the Broadway books called Fatal, which featured this very busty heroine who was, there's all sorts of sexual situations. She's getting spanked in issues. So that, I don't think that falls under the uh, family entertainment banner. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. The Valiant characters in particular, a lot of them are really, really beautiful in their design and i think there's a world where if they could figure out how to make solar man of the atom a a like really prominent character that character could be huge i could see that as a movie or like a tv series on netflix would be huge i think they would have to radically redesign him which kind of defeats you know your point earlier of his beautiful design because if you look at his visor and his headpiece i mean people are gonna say oh they just ripped off the design of cyclops you know not knowing the history that it's probably the other way around he does have a cyclopsy kind of look but like i don't know there's just something with that red suit in a way it almost feels like miracle man i mean the other thing too i I don't want to keep raining on your parade but what i realize is that radioactive man from the simpsons is like a hundred percent you know almost a ripoff of solar man of the atom as well with the red suit with the radioactive symbol on his chest so it's just like this guy can't win Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, it's kind of like the same fate of John Carter of Mars, you know, who is this character who basically is the earliest representation of a superhero. And he gets a movie and everybody's like, well, we've seen all that before, even though he was the inspiration for all the modern superheroes that everybody celebrates. Exactly. They're very true. But what's our next news item? A few episodes back, we reported on a story of David Copperfield suing an auction house for selling him a replica Batmobile when he wanted a screen-used vehicle that still had Michael Keaton's butt print. (laughs) (laughs) It still had Michael Keaton's butt print in the seat. (laughs) I'm sorry to tell you, David Copperfield, I don't know how much Michael Keaton was in that car other than, like, you know, close-up shots. He wasn't driving that thing. (laughs) The supermodel dating illusionist should have looked in the sewers because Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles co-creator Kevin Eastman purchased the real Batmobile and donated it to the Words and Pictures Museum of Fine Sequential Art in Northampton, Massachusetts. I think the original Batmobile from 89 is now at like the Warner Brothers Museum in in california i'm not sure if it's still in massachusetts or not because a couple of years ago when they opened like a dc movie archive i think they brought that car there well it makes you wonder if that museum even exists anymore yeah i'm not sure yeah something to look into but <gasps> michael this just did on the wizard special report line headline 
Liefeld leaves image. <laughs> it says here that Liefeld announced the decision September 4th, faxing a letter of resignation minutes before a meeting of image shareholders was held to discuss Liefeld's future with the company. Image shareholders approved a resolution to terminate Liefeld as a member of the board of directors. When asked for comment, Liefeld stated, quote, I'm not even sure yet why I resigned from image, but I can't say that I wasn't pressured into the decision. So did he quit or did he resign? Well, we're going to get into some details here, at least from Wizards' perspective, so they seem to think, because they begin to provide conjectures to the many possible reasons why Liefeld was pushed to leave the company he helped to co-found. So they start out with this piece. Quote, Extreme comics have not maintained the profitability that other image books have. Currently, Extreme's best-selling titles struggle to crack the top 100. Liefeld refutes this, though, decades later on his Observations podcast, where he claims that he was begged to hold off his resignation by the non-creative image executives, you know, like the money men, since the Extreme and Wildstorm books provided the revenue that kept image afloat. So according to Rob, he was bringing in the big bucks. Yep. So next here, public battles with Image co-founders Jim Valentino and Mark Silvestri are cited. Now, we've talked in detail about what Mark Silvestri had to say on the matter, and if you want to know what was involved in that feud or what Rob Liefeld's take on it was, you'll have to wait till next episode, because they do a full interview with Rob where he gives his, his side of the story, I guess you would say. But Valentino, on his side, specifically, he left Heroes Reborn when they were working on Avengers together, due to a clash over money, stating, quote, One expects to be paid for work that one does, and I wasn't paid for the last six pages of Avengers number three and all the fourth issue, and I keep getting the runaround. Now, in his usual fashion, Rob then claims to, quote, have the paperwork, the cancel checks, and the vouchers. To say that Jim Valentino wasn't paid for his work at Extreme Studios is a complete fallacy. So yes, that is always Rob's thing. I bring the receipts. I'm taking receipts. <laughs> now, the third item, Rob Rob's choice to move many Extreme Studios titles to his independent Maximum Press imprint definitely ruffled some feathers at Image, and Wizard also cites that the Heroes Reborn deal may be a source of tension as well, although that seems to have been refuted by the other Image founders when they've been asked about that at this time. It's funny this comes up today because Rob did a cover for Spider-Man that literally, he did an homage to himself for his cover on New Mutants, <laughs> it's the same exact thing, and he homaged himself, as opposed to like you know how people homage Frank Miller's Batman. <laughs> That's a narcissistic thing to do. Well, it's just in line with what he always did, though, because as we've gone back and revisited his work of the 90s, what did he do? He would just reuse his concepts over and over again. He cannibalized his own work. So, of course, when he comes back to it now, he's going to play on the nostalgia, but he's also just going to say, well, this is what I know how to do. I mean, even like in Heroes Reborn, he adds Tigra to the mix, right, on the Avengers, but she is just feral. His feral character from X-Force, it's exactly the same design. Exactly. Like, I just cannot believe that he thought he could get away with that. Now, one thing to note is if you'll recall a couple issues back when Mark Silvestri announced that he was leaving Image, they did this whole two-page spread about who's going to replace Mark Silvestri, what's going to happen to Image now. Like, that is not the case with Liefeld leaving at all. I mean, honestly, I'm sure they were, you know, cheering over at Wizard, be like, ah, oh, he's finally going to be out of the business or whatever they were thinking at the time. But instead, what 
what they do is they get sound bites from his image cohorts over there and they are not kind at all to rob so here is what they had to say so starting off with todd mcfarland quote i believe in a life you reap what you sow it's now harvest time for rob <laughs> oh always dramatic jim lee quote will image be weaker without rob liefeld i doubt it will it be stronger that's up to the remaining image partners to decide and i think we're up for the challenge eric larson quote rob pulled a richard nixon nixon resigned as he was going to be kicked out and rob was going to be kicked out Ooh. and jim valentino this one's a little bit more heartfelt says quote it's been pretty difficult for me on a lot of levels personally because i feel very much like i've lost one of my dearest friends and that's really tough to take and for those who don't know you know rob and jim valentino actually shared a studio in the early days and so they were uh, you know very good friends for a long time and they close out on mark silvestri who as we mentioned had recently left image but he says quote i think that people should realize that image is there and will always be there and whether or not i'm involved in that again I think we'll have an announcement one way or another relatively soon. Ooh, this is something to look forward to. But man, yeah, this was a big shakeup. As for Rob Liefeld's final word on the matter, quote, It's sad, admitted a shaken Liefeld. I believe I'll get through this. I don't know that I'd call myself a survivor, but I've been fortunate in my career so far. Oh my god. But an egomaniac. Mm, very humbled, this man. He's the victim in all this, you know. Man, he is like eating that humble pie. <laughs> but I'm telling you, Michael, like I teased, this is not the last we are hearing of this. This is uh, all the rage and wizard for the next few months, so it really heats up. This is like a soap <laughs> opera. It really is. But, uh, Michael, it's time to move out of the news and get into our table of contents. So, Wizard 63 with a November 1996 cover date features two different covers. The first is fitting the Halloween theme with a Witchblade and the Darkness cover by future superstar artist Michael Turner, while the second is a Superman and Lois Lane wedding cover by Stuart Eminen. Here's what Wizard had to say about that, because it was actually not the original choice. So it says, We bumped the issue's existing JLA cover by Bart Sears and ran the popular Superman wedding cover. So this is Superman kissing Lois Lane, but they add an interesting detail here. Note the initial sketch for the piece. It originally had Lois on the left, but when magazines are racked, they're occasionally laid one atop the other, with only the far left of the cover showing. That means your cover better have something enticing or recognizable, like Soup's famous S-Shield in the limelight. So they literally just like flip the image for the final, you know, drawing. He's like, uh, can you put Superman on the left so people will see it? That's funny. As far as the pack-ins for this issue, Wizard featured a die-cut Spider-Man trading card, which was supposed to be announcing the return of the one true Spider-Man they were so excited about. A virtual comics promo card, which is this actual, like, comics that were online and trying to introduce you to their new characters and a Pitt poster because Dale Keown is now publishing Pitt independently. Also included was an offer for the She Manga half issue. So we have the normal version of that, but we also have a gold version of that. Occasionally we come across these uh, special variant editions. It's kind of fun. But let's get into our cover story here, Michael. Wedding of the Century is dealing with the 60 years in the making super nuptials of Clark Kent and Lois Lane with the release of Superman the Wedding. 
wedding album. I have this issue. Oh, great. Not only does the story feature the wedding ceremony as drawn by Dan Jurgens, but nearly every other living Superman artist gets a chance to draw a few pages to pay homage to their work with the Man of Steel over the years. Now, a few notable names on the roster are John Byrne, Jerry Ordway, George Perez, Jackson Geis, Art T. Bear, and a posthumous contribution by the recently departed Kurt Swan. Most comics fans know, actually, though, that the death of Superman storyline was originally supposed to be a wedding storyline, but due to the Lois and Clark New Adventures of Superman hitting the airwaves, Warner Brothers decided to hold off until the pair could tie the knot on TV and comics simultaneously, and that is what ended up happening here. There's a little sidebar, actually, about the wedding on the TV series, but I think the most exciting news for classic Superman fans is that Kal-El is finally cutting his ponytail for the wedding. Yes, after three years of rocking the super mullet, as some people call it, Jurgen says of the decision, quote, there have been a number of us on the books who have wanted to have the hair cut for a long, long time. Superman with longish hair looked okay, but there were those of us who felt it was unrealistic. Frankly, I think Clark looked like a dork with a ponytail. <laughs> but what unrealistic? What's that about? Superman, the man who's bulletproof from another planet, had a ponytail, and that's unrealistic. <laughs> Now, I'm sure there were a lot of fans that would match the enthusiasm of Jurgens for the haircut decision, but I don't know if everybody would agree or have the same amount of enthusiasm for the magnitude of this event. Because Jurgens is really selling it as he says, quote, It's sort of an honor to be involved in something that is a great moment in comics history. You can't help but realize you're doing something that's going to be a famous scene in the history of comics. So I have to ask you, Michael, where do you feel the wedding ranks as a great moment in comics history like did you read it at the time is it something that stood out to you i honestly think this is more significant than the death of superman and i'll tell you why because other than the aforementioned new 52 this has stayed true for since 96 you know oh, like wow. it hasn't you know they haven't taken away them being married other than the new 52 which they realized that was a mistake and retconned it back to the way it was so i think that's kind of like a change in the character's history that has stayed true which i think is more significant than the, the death that was taken away wow okay that's a perspective i had not considered now here's the funny thing about the haircut thing though I always wondered this, like, how does Superman shave? How does he, you know, cut his hair? Because his hair has got to be as, as, you know, impenetrable as his body, right? And I think it was in Lois and Clark where he, like, uses his heat vision on a mirror to shave. And I was like, how does he do that to cut his hair? <laughs> <laughs> he's got a lot of mirrors and he's a crack shot with that heat vision. But I guess like for me, it is not an issue that I picked up back in the day because it didn't seem like it mattered at that point. Like it, it was just like, well, okay, they're getting married. Good for them. I saw that on the cover of Wizard, so I knew it had happened. But like reading the issue, it's like, you know, what do you got? A bachelor party. You've got a bachelorette party. You've got a few little storylines going on here and there. And then there's this big scene at the end at the church and Dan Jurgens actually drew all the artists and writers and people into the pews I remember that but it's just one of those things where i'm just like i don't know if people point to this image you know it's not like this is an image that has been homaged like oh this is an iconic moment you know and uh, honestly like reed and sue their marriage in the 60s beat this out by so many years <laughs> but michael why don't you take us into our second cover story 
So our second cover story, Witchful Thinking, is a look at the future of Witchblade comics. That top cow editor and Witchblade co-creator David Wohl refers to as a thinking book. A, a description a description that Wizard agrees, this is one title that isn't turning out to be your normal babes with boobs and big guns exercise. It's noted that this may be a, because... The character of Sarah Pazzini is given a more realistic female perspective due to her other writer on the book being a woman named Christina Z. It's specifically stated that her last name is a guarded secret at Top Cow. Though no reason is given for the secrecy, Z claims to write for real-life situations, though she also mixes history with fiction on the spin-off Tales of Witchblade, which will weave the mystic gauntlet into the stories of notable women in history. Getting back to, you know, the concept of 90s characters that have endured, you know, maybe not in the general pop culture, even though she did get a TV show, but Witchblade is one of those characters that has just been continuously published for all this time. I mean, Ron Mars, when we interviewed him, said he had wrote it, like, all told for 10 years. I mean, that's a crazy long run for a writer on a single character and then just for a character to exist at all for that length of time. Yeah, no, it is it is one of those characters that has endured and you know there there is I would say a cult following of that character that's that is lingered and sticks around and I remember watching the show. I loved the pilot of that show, but I never watched anything after that of it. It's an interesting character because they could do cool stuff with it and I think today if they did like a, you know, again a Netflix 10 episode miniseries or Amazon Prime thing, it would be huge like it would get really really good reviews i think yeah i mean with all the love of you know female heroines taking center stage but also for fantasy content and in the wake of game of thrones and all that kind of stuff it does feel like it could have an angle sci-fi and fantasy that would play out very well but michael let's move on to our next story here which features the title damage control Oh, wait, my bad. No, false alarm, false alarm. Nothing offensive here. This is an article that is trying to keep potential readers buying non-Heroes Reborn Marvel books at this time by giving a look at the World Without Heroes initiative, as they were calling it, that is taking place in the 616 main Marvel continuity. Now that the big names like the Fantastic Four, Captain America, and Iron Man are in a pocket universe. Although, I think this is kind of funny, because all of these characters characters were floundering in sales in the years leading up to their disappearance into the Heroes Reborn universe, which is why they were targeted to have their profile raised for this event. I mean, it wasn't like they were burning up the charts. And after Heroes Reborn as well, they sort of yeah. floundered again. Yeah, it's definitely not like they were ever getting, you know, X-Men numbers or anything like that. But these leftovers uh, in the Marvel universe, you have Daredevil, which writer Carl Kiesel explains, quote, we're really going to explore how Daredevil has to pick up the slack now that the big heroes are gone. While Spider-Man group editor Ralph Macchio teases, quote, Spider-Man's one of the few guys left in New York who could do something about it, and his workload is going to be increased. Now, of the fallout for the mutants of Marvel Comics, writer Scott Lobdell states, quote, The X-Men are going to be particularly blamed for this. The heat is turned up on these characters, and they'll be responding in turn. Now, also mentioned are characters like Ghost Rider, and most interesting to me, the Hulk, who despite being featured 
featured in the Heroes Reborn comics somehow is also existing in the main continuity? This one kind of confused me. Could it be like Red Hulk or could it be, a you know? No, it's definitely not that because he's green in the Heroes Reborn issues that I read and he's got wild, long, parted in the middle 90s hair. <laughs> oh boy. Now I will say the most relevant piece of this article is a sidebar about a new group of heroes rising to the occasion, filling the void as a team called Thunderbolts, which is going to be written by Kurt Busiek and drawn by Mark Bagley. Now, obviously, we have had the announcement of the movie that is going to be part of the MCU continuity using these Thunderbolts. Well, not exactly, using the concept of Thunderbolts. But at this time, the original team consisted of new unknown characters with names like Citizen V, or is it Citizen 5? I've always wondered. Meteorite, Songbird, Atlas, Techno, and Mach 1. And they are going to debut as guest stars in Incredible Hulk number 449, which you better believe is selling for 150 bucks plus now on eBay. <laughs> now, of course, the Thunderbolts roster turns out to be more than meets the eye as the story progresses, but that is a discussion for another time. It'll be very cool to see the reaction of Wizard to the uh, revelations that appear. Next up, Little Rascals is a reminder to readers in 1996 that there is a comic being published by Marvel called Generation X. And in case you didn't know who was on the Teenage Mutant Team, they break down the roster. Kind of a filler piece, if you ask me. Much more interesting is the Wizard Q&A with JLA writer Grant Morrison. Wow, they got him to talk, because he doesn't talk to anybody, about his many projects at DC Comics. After getting his start writing for the British comic magazine 2000 AD, Morrison became known mainly for writing dark Vertigo titles like Doom Patrol, Animal Man, The Invisibles, and a short stint on Swamp Thing. Though Morrison explains, it's kind of weird that people are associating me with the kind of Vertigo stuff because out of 300 stories I've written, only 30 of them have been through the Vertigo imprint. After reading Mark Wade's Flash and Kurt Busiek's Astro City, Morrison revealed, those are the superhero comics that I've always wanted to do a bit more upbeat, a bit more positive and imaginative than the stuff we've been getting in the post-Dark Knight Returns era of comics, which I find so contradictory to what he says, because like Batman R.I.P., Final Crisis, all of them are so dark and depressing <laughs> and just mental. But I would think that is just a stigma that's associated with the British writers and the UK imports that have come over is everybody's like, oh, they're so dark and depressing and twisted. So that is what you put their names on when you give them a project, you want them to write dark. And so it's just editorial kind of saying like, hey, this is what we trust you to do. This is what the fans expect from you. They're paying for you to bite the dark stuff, right? Write the scary stuff and get it over, man. Come on. You know what it's all about. You know the score, right? With all you Brits, it's so dark. You know, it's all, you got Jack the Ripper over the foggy streets of London. You know, it's foggy and gloomy over there. You got a story to tell over here. <laughs> but we haven't even talked about his bright, shiny new book, JLA. Okay, Morrison explains uh, sales being down on JLA and the acceptance of his proposal to bring back the original Justice League roster of marquee names was just a matter of the right timing. I spoke with Mark Wade 
about this and he said that even if it would have been a day later it probably wouldn't have gone through on the tone of the book morrison explains i'm trying to give it kind of a mythical feel real widescreen stuff a hundred million dollar movie budget kind of feel morrison also mentions the jla wildcats crossover in the works as well as plans to get plastic man into the big leagues and join the team he loves plastic man he uses him <laughs> all the time he really? loves that character for some reason oh my god all the time that character pops up in such random ways i just can't wait to do it because i want to write him as a jim carrey being ace ventura just completely over the top he is kind of that character well, and the weird thing is, Steven Spielberg was reported to be working on a live-action Plastic Man film in the 90s. I have to believe Jim Carrey was his number one choice. I mean, he would have been perfect in that era. I can even see Jim Carrey doing it today. It's just so bizarre. And if he hadn't just retired from acting again. Paychecks change people's <laughs> minds pretty quick. <laughs> yes, indeed. Now, Michael, at the end of the interview, the thing that stood out to me the most, Morrison is asked about his other book, Aztec, the Ultimate Man, which he is writing with Mark Miller. He says, quote, The whole idea of Aztec is to show a completely different side of the DC Universe, things that we haven't seen before. Mark just wrote an issue where he revealed that villains aren't allowed to wisecrack unless they have reached a certain level of accomplishment in the supervillain community. So here's the thing about Aztec. I remember seeing this ad in Wizard. The character design was so striking, and just the name, Aztec, the Ultimate Man, what is that? Like, what is that going to be i've always wanted to read it i've always hoped to find it in a quarter bin somewhere and just never have so this week i finally just tracked it down to read so i would be able to just give a quick review here just tell you what i thought and all i could say is that i was just kind of baffled by the concept and let down because it just felt like whatever ideas they were trying to get onto the page were very muddled and maybe they were trying to create mystery but the basic concept is that there is this character who is raised by warrior monks in South America to be the ultimate warrior. And so he ends up going to this town called Vanity and they're kind of over superheroes like, I don't know, it's more of an Astro City place although I've never heard of Vanity in the DC Universe. Who are the heroes that they have there? I don't know. And Aztec isn't even really his alias or anything. That is something that a newspaper reporter just comes up with and they have kind of a funny debate like, well I think it's more Mayan or Incan. They're like ah, Aztec sounds better. Aztec A-Z-T-E-K, right? <laughs> but basically, he's got this outfit that's got this big, golden, spiky helmet. He has feather wing cape things that he can fly around with, and he has this like super armor, but it doesn't look like armor. I mean, ultimately, it just looks like some sort of spandex, but it has all these different capabilities, and he can track all this information. It's just like, whatever he needs, something. Oh, my suit can do this. My suit can do that. But I, it was just kind of boring, because he takes on a secret identity of a doctor, but the character himself just really doesn't have a personality. It's a fish out of water. He doesn't know what's going on in our world. He's understanding our customs, because literally he was raised in this monastery to fight, and it's kind of like Arnold Schwarzenegger in the movie Twins, where he's like raised in a lab to be the perfect man, you know? I don't know. It's just nothing about it was as clever or quirky as I think they attempted. Maybe the editors like tamped down. Maybe they wanted 
it to be more like wanted and it just didn't come out that way you know like this exploration of the underside of you know superheroes and supervillains the only fun issue was when the joker showed up and he was taking a vacation from gotham and he brings these river dancing robotic penguins <laughs> yes you heard that right that emit a frequency that drives people insane and then you know when the joker meets up with aztec he keeps calling him aztec which is pretty hilarious <laughs> But yeah, overall, it was just not ah, what I wanted it to be, unfortunately. But it seemed like he hit the mark better on his dream project of JLA, where he was mentioning those $100 million budget production values of the comic. So, Michael, why don't you take us into... Heroes in Motion. The main story in the trailer park section is an update on the Incredible Hulk animated series, which includes the mention of Ghost Rider voiced by Richard Grieco, guest starring in an episode as a backdoor pilot for a solo series and the announcement of Lisa Zane as She-Hulk. Oh, that's interesting. Speaking of the Zane family, <laughs> it's reported that the Phantom starring Lisa's brother, Billy, has been added to the list of disappointing comic book adaptations as it made less than $18 million in the box office. It's such a bummer because he looks so good in the character costume. Like, he looks perfect. Hey, I mean, I saw it in theaters. I got my VHS copy with the purple clamshell. You know, I don't know much of Billy Zane's work outside his cameo in Zoolander and his small role in the Back to the Future movies. I mean, I know he's in Titanic, but I only watched that movie once on VHS while recovering from surgery, so I remember very little about it. But even if that's the case, I can say that I saw Dead Calm recently. I have a VHS copy, and I finally watched it with Sam Neill, Nicole Kidman, but he plays like the psycho killer guy of that. He was pretty good. He had an interesting take on it. Also, this is the first report that Kevin Smith has been tapped to write a screenplay for a live-action Superman film, which we all know becomes the Death of Superman Lives documentary yeah. years and years later. An experience which ends in the unbelievable story of the misguided whims of the Hollywood producer who just wanted to see a giant spider monster on screen. <laughs> oh, man. Next up, Wizard reports that the UPN network is considering the development of a primetime animated series starring Marvel's obscure Mort, the dead teenager character. If you've never heard of this undead teen comedy series written by Larry Hama, check your local quarter bin. <laughs> well, I can say that I've had some luck and found a few issues. I buy them when I can find them. Of yes. course you do. Oh, Why would God. you not set money on fire for this stupid <laughs> thing? Oh my goodness. Okay. The Sailor Moon animated series has been canceled in the United States after 65 episodes aired to disappointing ratings on 87 stations nationwide. Even a write-in campaign from devoted fans dubbed SOS or Save Our Sailor failed to rescue the series from oblivion. Canadian fans, however, 
are in luck as the series will continue to air in the Great White North and Down Under in Australia and New Zealand. It's so funny because this particular character in this show has such a like cosplay cult following still to this day you go to new york comic-con or any there's still sailor moon character cosplays all over the place and it's it's surprising that it only had 65 episodes in the u.s it's so surprising yeah i mean it definitely caught my attention back in the day i used to watch it in the 90s in my area it played before school so i'd watch some sailor moon while eating my breakfast for that brief year that it was running but it does feel like that character is right next to pikachu in terms of anime recognition but jumping back to the beginning of the magazine here uh, in the magic words section actually the first letter in magic words there is a picture of the doctor doom from the corbin fantastic four and somebody wrote in saying dear almighty wizard whatever happened to the fantastic four movie it never hit theaters or even my vcr what's going on here steven sapellis long L- oh wait <laughs> Jason Burris, Lamar, Missouri. And Jim's response here is, The movie was so incredibly horribly bad that it got shelved. It was never released anywhere. By the way, just so you know, comic book movies are made to break your heart. You always want them. You always wait in breathless anticipation for them. And they always suck. (laughs) Although, you know, if you've listened to our four-part exploration of the making of the Fantastic Four movie, as hosted by Steven Sapellis, and our own Michael Canetti, then you are well aware that there is so much more to the story. Let's put it this way. Between watching that movie and recording that podcast, (laughs) then editing that podcast, that's about 25 hours of my life I'll never get back as long as I live. (laughs) Finally, this issue features the casting call for a live-action Preacher movie many years before the Preacher series would premiere on AMC. So let's see who Wizard cast in the Dark series created by Garth Innes and Steve Dillon. Okay, so Jesse Custer is the main character, and they actually cast someone I I kind of approve with, of a Jason Patrick from The Lost Boys and the ultimately failed Speed 2. (laughs) That's what I was just going to say. I was like, I don't think Speed 2 had come out yet, so they were not aware uh, that maybe he was not the right for the role. But I mean, at the same time, it feels like there's got to be someone out there of this era who maybe had a little bit more of the gravitas. I mean, I always look at him, I just see like a young Bob Dylan, so I... Bob Dylan's not into acting, but... All right, uh, for the next character here, though, for the uh, Irish vampire Cassidy, they said, We need someone who could look like a real scumbag with what the hell of a boot-up-your-ass attitude. Who better than Sean Penn? Yeah, but they, they they used the picture from Dead Man Walking because it was the only time he had a mustache. I, I feel like there had to have been plenty of like British or Irish actors who could have played that role. At the very least, get Liam Neeson in there. I mean, there had to be more choices than Sean Penn. There had to have been, of course. Yeah. That's, just, that's just lazy. So for Tulip O'Hare, they, they have Lauren Holly, who literally was every teenage boy's icon during dumb and dumber and they just kind of vanished she vanished after that i don't know where she went yeah she didn't make it out of 1996 it feels like but they also used that same photo they cast her as fairchild in a gen 13 movie so it's just like lord holly's our go-to gal but the next one here they have for grandma marina and michael i don't know if you actually got far enough in reading your preacher trades to get to the grandma marie storyline but she was pretty diabolical 
diabolical. They want Cloris Leachman, of all people. And that is a wild choice. I mean, I know she did dramatic work before she was known mainly as, like, the weird old grandma lady. But I, I think she could definitely pull something deep and twisted out of there. I can understand that. So, for the Saint of Killers, they cast... <laughs> Jack Palance only because of his City Slickers role. Yeah, I mean, as kids of the 90s, you know, we know him from Batman and City Slickers, but his whole career prior to that, I understand he mostly played bad guys in westerns, and I know he was in this Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode movie called Angel's Revenge as this drug pusher guy, so I know him from there as a mean and diabolical, so I mean, certainly he had enough practice at that. Now, the next one here is their casting choice for the one and only Arseface. And so this is uh, kind of inspired, actually. Says, with a little makeup, all right, a lot of makeup, we think Elijah Wood from The Good Son and Flipper would be great as everyone's favorite disfigured teen. And if you have followed Elijah Wood's career, you know, beyond the Lord of the Rings films, he definitely loves these kind of twisted, quirky films. I mean, even just Sin City, right? Like, he would definitely have taken this. Oh, kidding elijah loves demented characters exactly. like when i saw him do the the remake yeah. maniac yeah it was wild it's a great yeah. movie though it's fantastic and he's unbelievable in it so for uh jesus decade or decide they've got christopher walken i mean you know any kind of demented character christopher walken was always like oh yeah grab that guy he's always demented yeah i mean i don't know that character but uh put walken in the movie now uh for our space's dad sheriff root they want r lee ermy they say that he has shown he could be one mean SOB when he has to. That's why we chose him for the toughest nails, Sheriff Root. And I'd say I'd be on board for that just because, you know, recency bias. I recently watched the remake with Crispin Glover called Willard, and he played like the evil boss villain in that, and uh, he did a pretty good job. Yeah, Willard is a weird movie. So I gotta take this one. So for TC, they cast Tracy Walter, a.k.a. (laughs) Bob the Joker's goon. Yes. (laughs) I'm totally on board with that one. Well, and I just love how definite their declaration is here because they say no judgment here on his personal life, but Tracy Walter is the only actor who could do justice to Jody's sex-crazed, chicken-loving psycho pal. <laughs> and speaking of the Jody character, they say here, for Jody, we want someone who's huge, tough, and able to kick some serious ass. Pro wrestler Hulk Hogan was a unanimous decision. They would it? never get him to shave his mustache. Well, the thing is, he did, though, for his various like straight to video movies I think there was one where he was like a secret agent and there was this period where he was making movies and he totally like lost all his muscle and his bulk and he just slimmed down into actor mode and he looked so weird but he shaved his mustache for these movies that nobody saw what's the one where he was the babysitter how could you forget him on the cover on the poster with the pink tutu Mr. Nanny Mr. Nanny is what I was thinking of so this is a little bit on the nose. They have for the Duke, they cast the Duke himself, John Wayne. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny, actually, because they just say that we'll just do that Forrest Gump special effects stuff and bring the Duke back to life. <laughs> it was the height of technology. Exactly. There was nothing uh, better than that. And then the final character here, I don't think I got along far enough in the run or I just wasn't paying close enough attention, but there's somebody named Hair Star with two R's, and they say John Shea, Lois and Clark, has the perfect high and mighty nasty attitude to play star besides he looks good bald so john shea actually became a 
bald Lex Luthor in Lois and Clark, the new adventures of Superman? Later on, in like one of the later seasons, yeah, he does okay. get bald. That's a little bit of a lazy casting there, if you ask yeah. me, but uh, whatever. I'll, I'll let it slide. I mean, I definitely have an alternate suggestion for this, just looking at the picture, but I would say Ben Kingsley should play this character. That would have been good, yeah. I, I could see that. I, I, I'm down with that. All right, Michael. Well, then it's time to get out of the theaters and into the toy aisles with a little bit of Merch Madness. As a follow-up to a previous discussion about DC-inspired video games, the Junk Drawer video game section this time around features a retrospective on all of the Marvel-inspired electronic adventures, mostly starring Spider-Man. This begins in 1982 with the Atari 2600 Spider-Man game that had an awesome live-action commercial that everybody should look up on YouTube. You know I love the Nicholas Hammond late 70s television series, but this costume is just so much better. Oh, Uh, I remember that commercial. You're right. yeah. Yeah, I mean, why they didn't just use these production values? There's a cool Green Goblin in there also like just make that the show that was a good costume i agree so after that first foray they actually jump ahead quite far to the sega genesis game from 1991 just called spider-man which was awesome because the arcade version actually allowed you to play as hawkeye namor or black cat which is just bizarre you know if you're gonna have multiplayer stuff going on there that also had a remake on the sega cd now meanwhile nintendo was just offering up an 8-bit spider-man game which i don't remember at all Although, uh, when they get to the Super Nintendo, Wizard is bemoaning the awful Spider-Man and X-Men in Arcade's Revenge, which I still have my cartridge here, and my kids play it from time to time, but it's a hard one, because you have to do it all in one life, or you have to start everything over. There was also, of course, the Maximum Carnage juggernaut of marketing, which was a big deal, and then its follow-up, the symbiote-filled Separation Anxiety, with all these various, you know, Venom and Carnage offspring that they had to battle. Now, also mentioned is a game inspired by Spider-Man, the animated series, which I have to believe I rented at least once from Blockbuster, but I don't recall anything. Do you? I'm sure I saw it at the time, but I don't remember it at this this point in my life now. Now, they cap it off with a mention of the latest game to come out, which was Marvel Super Heroes War of the Gems, like a fighting game. But to me, it's the omissions that stand out the most. There was no mention of the multiple Spider-Man games for the Game Boy, of which I had a couple. There was the Silver Surfer for the original Nintendo. They don't even mention Captain America and the Avengers on the Super Nintendo. Of course, I remember playing that in the arcade as well. That was just cool to get all those characters in. Captain America game in the arcade was awesome. I yeah. loved that. I never played on the on a console, but in the arcade, it was fun. Yeah, it was just so interesting to play as like Hawkeye or Captain America or Iron Man or the white version of Vision. Yeah, that was wild. But they basically wrap it up promising that the next issue, they're going to be covering all the X-Men inspired games. Oh yeah. man, there was a lot of those. That's for sure. But what do we have up next here, Michael? In the world of trading cards, Gen 13 is getting a new 90 card set in 1996, which 
will feature five storyboard art cards from the then upcoming but ultimately never released animated movie and nine Gen Alloy cards. Yeah, I mean, I've got the original series complete in a binder from the year before, but I don't have this 96 series. I feel like I got to track down a pack and find out what they were all about. Fleer Skybox is releasing a Marvel Ultra Onslaught card set featuring the Heroes Reborn versions of the characters as drawn by Adam and Andy Kubert, Uberto Ramos, as well as the masterminds of the event, Jim Lee, and Rob Liefeld. 300 randomly inserted autograph cards signed by Liefeld, Lee, and Stan the Man Lee are the big chase cards from this set. Yeah, I honestly had no idea these existed until I covered them on the last mini episode because there was a contest where Wizard was giving away an entire set, including the autographed cards and all the chase cards. But yeah, it's not something I was aware of at all. I mean, I don't remember seeing them at the comic book store, but again, I wasn't really keeping an eye out for any of the work of Jim Lee or Rob Liefeld. And the Marvel Metal Cards fiasco had chased me off of collecting Marvel cards at all. I stopped by this point. Now, over in the Toy Chest section, we get news on the crazy new figure lines from Toy Biz, including X-Men Ninja Force, (laughs) featuring a shirtless and maskless Ninja Wolverine. Gotta be shirtless, baby. (laughs) Give me that shirtless. There was also a Sabertooth figure you're called, yes, Ninja Sabertooth, Deathbird, and Ninja Psylocke. <laughs> Which is redundant because she's... She is a ninja. It's like kind of like a little nail on the head there. Now, the strange thing is, this extended to their line of 10-inch figures, because I remember several years back being in an antique mall and seeing a 10-inch rogue figure, and then when I inspected it more clearly, she had like this mini kimono shirt on, and they were calling her Ninja rogue so this just there was ninja everything i have known adam now for a little over i'd say four or five years and i don't know where he finds these flea markets or or these like pawn shops or whatever but he finds things that here in new york at least i've never seen anything like the stuff that he finds he's like check out this thing that i found and i'm like how do you find this stuff no one it, it has to be in the middle of nowhere because it's exactly. not here we are definitely in the outer reaches of the universe where such things uh still have managed to survive but uh the thing is they also added in this assortment a figure from the age of apocalypse it's a character called holocaust he's like this armor guy with like fire inside but they changed his name on the packaging to dark nemesis they said obviously to avoid offending anyone using the term holocaust no kidding which totally reminds me of just a few years later when mcfarland starts making the austin powers action figures for the movies and when fat bastard was on the pegs the name on the packaging just said fat man fat man that's right i remember that it was just it said fat, fat man, man on the box. <laughs> By the way, I just want to mention something here very quickly is that reading this magazine has given me a potty mouth. I'll just put it that way. I am, I'm constantly having to say ass and bastard and all these different things. These are words I do not use in my everyday life at all. It is only when I am quoting Wizard Magazine. I just want to make that clear. But getting back into the action figures, I would have to say that crazier than the Ninja Force line for X-Men was Spider-Man Vampire Wars, which were figures that were tying 
jumping into the then current story arc on the latest season of the Spider-Man animated series, which starred Morbius. I hated that story arc on that show. I hated it. Uh, Oh, it's it's the worst. Boo. So it wasn't Morbin time for you. No. (laughs) Well, I'm sure your opinion of the figures wasn't much better because included are Blade the Vampire Hunter, Morbius Unbound, which is a figure I actually have in a toy box here that I let my kids play with. My case in point, you've just... (laughs) literally validate what i just said there you Uh, go so also in the mix are an air attack spider-man with like this flight armor and what i have to say is the ugliest figure ever conceived vampire spider-man okay so this thing just has like these weird like ears and fins and giant distorted feet and something attached to the head like this is ugly yeah i saw it before yeah i i I actually remember this figure when when i saw this thing i was like yeah it's demented it's yeah. demented but you know what's ironic about this though part of this story arc in the animated series was the eight armed he becomes a spider creature and there's no figure for that they actually did i have the man spider figure over here on my shelf that's one of my favorites and just by contrast to this ridiculous looking vampire spider-man the actual man spider is fantastic and i'm pretty sure they also released the six armed spider-man with just you know the four extra arms you know sticking out the side because they the just they, they literally just re-released it for Marvel Legends recently, the okay. eight-arm version of him. Oh, that's cool. But speaking of Spider-Man characters we want to see or maybe don't want to see, Wizard actually adds a what they call a gratuitous plug, little blurb, promoting their upcoming Wizard Toy Special, as they call it. It wasn't Toy Fair just yet. And they say that it's going to have an offer for an exclusive Molten Man mail-away action figure, of which only 7,500 will be produced and i have to imagine that 7450 of those figures remained in the warehouse for the rest of the magazine's lifetime because nobody wanted a molten man figure why are you going to come out of the gate making that your exclusive bad choice you know they they've been pushing that character for so long again in marvel legends they released like a build a figure Molten Man. What? Oh yeah, for what? sure. As a build a figure, you had to get buy five other characters to get Molten Man, and I think I have one of them. And I'm like, I'm never gonna use these parts. I'm just gonna. I hate the build a figure model. I just can't stand it. I'm like, I'm not gonna use this part. I'm not gonna buy all five of these characters and just to build this figure. And it's always a junky thing, like like Molten Man. Like if you're gonna get like a, a Sentinel or something like that, sure, yeah. I, I I I could buy that. But like if it's just like another figure. I, I don't care. For $125 in figures, I'm not going to get one extra one. Great. Yeah, the only time for me that it stood out that I thought it was kind of cool was there was this line for a while called Legendary Comic Book Heroes that had like Madman and Witchblade and Savage Dragon and all these, uh, you know, independent comic book creations. And the Build-A-Figure was Pit. But that made sense because he was this giant hulking figure, right? So you'd have to have giant pieces to put them together. But otherwise, yeah, I mean, just not a gimmick I'm ever on board for but that ain't all we got for action figure news a special two-pack of figures titled marvel's famous couples featuring a spider-man with a removable mask and the first ever five-inch mary jane action figure will be released as a toys r us exclusive toys r us will also release an exclusive duo of two packs called alternate x which will feature Wolverine and Gambit in their Age of Apocalypse incarnations teamed with their standard costume versions. 
Also, Sam's Club stores will get exclusive X-Men Danger Room and Spider-Man Venom Saga four packs in time for the holidays. Yeah, Toyba's never missed an opportunity to repackage a figure, that's for sure. In more exclusive news, FAO Schwartz is also offering a repainted The Max with two white and two black is figurines also kenner is declaring that the aquaman figure will be the short packed chase figure in the total justice line and yet i see a gazillion of them on ebay today (laughs) yeah (laughs) and even more collectible limited run version of the of the figure will feature gold armor instead of the original gunmetal gray yeah now i gotta say of all of these exclusive packs i mean the venom saga is one i wish i would have known about i'm sure i would have bought that as a kid but nowadays even then i would have been into that famous couples because not i'm mean, the mary jane figure is cool but more exciting to me is a removable mask spider-man which they didn't release in, in any, any form which surprises me because they did removable mask venom just not spider-man i would have bought that figure too i would have yeah. this two pack is cool it's very cool actually i would have definitely bought this it's actually probably cooler than just the regular animated series figure yeah and i mean i loved my peter parker just plain peter parker figure plus my battle ravaged spider-man figure where his mask was ripped a little bit so you could see the face so just to have a removable mask spider-man would have been fantastic to me but there are even more toy biz variations hitting the market at this time michael listen to this a company called puzzle zoo is releasing exclusive repaints and reissues of classic toy biz marvel figures released under the marvel hall of fame banner which they say has a trading card inserted which i don't know they always put these trading cards in i didn't care about that but i remember these things mostly being in discount bins at kb toy stores but at this point they are for mail order only and they're like these exclusive ads in wizard so getting into the list of reissue figures here i think a lot of these were ones where like the effect or the action feature didn't work and so they re-released them in a different form because they're talking about the color changing Iceman and then the color changing invisible woman which we talked about way back when as being super rare and hard to find except you know the version that had the little platform that she jumped up on Uh, but there was also the deadpool figure the original one and then the original red daredevil figure from the 1990 marvel superheroes line but then it's the repaints that are really interesting because like initially they're talking like colossus and rhino they just have like a little different pattern on their clothing they're not that different but they're hyping a storm in a black costume now her original release that first wave of uncanny x-men figures she was in black and then they repainted it to silver i think to match the animated series and there's also a white version if i remember correctly but when i look at this figure in the ad it looks like it's a totally different like sculpt and figure that they turned into storm with the repaint it's not just like a repaint of the costume area and then there is a generation x emma frost that's repainted to be the black queen and then the most interesting transformation to me is that there is a domino figure that gets repainted and it becomes jean gray with her 90s like orange and blue look like the jim lee redesigned and was on the animated series oh really now they also mention a julia carpenter like black and white spider woman costume she's even on like the card like the packaging but in this ad it's not 
featured for some reason. I don't know why. I assume that's just like the repainted, they had the, you know, uh, Jessica Drew Spider-Woman that was part of like the special collector series where they also released the Ben Riley Spider-Man, the Spider-Man 2099. So I'm assuming that's what that was. Julia Carpenter, black, white, uh, Spider-Woman costume is one of my favorite like Spider-Woman looks. Yeah, like I have the Marvel Legends variant figure of that because I, it was just such a cool look. And I actually have a two-pack that Toy Fizz released, but they're like Mego doll size, which is Julia Carpenter, Spider-Woman, and Spider-Man in the black costume that's still sealed in the package. I love that two-pack. It's actually from a two-issue team up that they had in Peter Parker's Spectacular Spider-Man. I have those issues too. <laughs> but uh, the other thing that's cool here, Michael, speaking of black costumes, is that they have a Carol Danvers Miss Marvel costume, you know, the black one with the red sash. But the strange thing about it is they call it Miss Marvel Universe. And I don't know why. It seems to me like that's got to have something to do with like a rights issue. Like somewhere there was a Miss Marvel that had, they, I like, it couldn't be Mary Marvel, right? DC wouldn't have the rights to that she was never called miss marvel so that one's strange but yeah but carol danvers is right there so it's funny with the the carol danvers black costume miss marvel thing they did a couple things recently with with like captain marvel where they gave her a black and red costume and made her kind of a villain for a little while for a short stint of an arc and it's a really cool redesign and i don't know i like when they do those kind of like weird things and and they kind of take a risk but it works but i mean there's a lot of toys that they're talking about yeah i mean it's just so much product it really felt like toy biz was just hanging on for dear life they're like we gotta get more out there come on kids grab the plastic grab the plastic (laughs) (laughs) but speaking of those guys who had plenty of credit on their plastic hmm, that was a stretch it's time for jim and todd's hype machine So starting out here with a follow-up to a report on a previous episode about Spawn the Impaler, which was a fully painted comic taking the historic Transylvanian Vlad the Impaler and imagining him being endowed with a Hellspawn symbiote. I was all hyped up and it's mentioned and then I found it while I was flipping through a back issue bin. So I started looking at the pages and uh, it stinks. (laughs) So it's just, it's something where everybody wanted to have fully painted art in their comics. Alex Ross made it a big deal. And as I read through it, though, it's just this artist, it's something about it, like everybody looks like a mannequin. Like Alex Ross gives his characters a warmth and kind of a depth to them. They look realistic. But with these guys, they're all facing different directions when they're supposed to be having conversations. Like they just have dead eyes. It's just nothing about it works for, you know, sequential storytelling. Black eyes like a doll's eyes. (laughs) (laughs) But what's Jim Lee up to over there? So shortly after launching his own independent comics imprint as a home for Kirk Busiek's Astro City, Strangers in Paradise, and Leave It to Chance, Jim Lee announces that Homage Comics will now be published under the Image banner. The reason, the money, obviously, because Diamond bought out Capital City Distributors, Lee explains. Image has in its exclusive contract with Diamond 
a better deal for a publisher than the remaining independent. Yeah, it's just so interesting how quickly that turned around. It's like, hey, we have an independent label, homage comics. Oh, wait, nope. Now let's just go back to image. We're counting those pennies. But other than that, we're pretty short on Jim and Todd news, so it's time to get to our tally. So in this issue, Jim Lee is mentioned seven times, Todd McFarnell is mentioned six times. That brings our total to Jim Lee, 369 mentions, Todd McFarlane, 369 mentions? Whoa. They're tied, Michael. Oh, we're getting down to it. It's a nail biter. Oh, what are we going to do now? They gotta, we're going to have to tiebreaker here. <laughs> it's going to get crazy over here. I don't know what's going to happen. It's heating up. The competition is fierce. This is like, We didn't predict this. We thought maybe Jim would overtake Todd, but to get caught in a tie. Oh, you got to tune in next episode, geeks. You will find out who is the true champion. Who is Wizard's favorite darling? But let's bring this crazy train into the station <laughs> with a little bit of Turox Top 10. And our top 10 most frightening things about working at Wizard Press. I am all on board for this one. Okay. And number 10, the pubic hair bird nests in the urinals. Uh, I wish I could say it was going to get more highbrow. Uh, number nine, the angry and nervously endowed dog that marks his scent on a different car in our parking lot every morning. <laughs> Alrighty. Uh, number eight, the pair of origin unknown black and purple underwear dangling from the nightcrawler figure in the hallway. What the mysterious undergarments decking the halls over there at Wizard. Okay, uh, now we have here number seven, Wiz editor Andrew Carden's collection of patchwork Mego dolls all at various states of undress doing things to each other. Okay, so the thing about this, Michael, is if you go back and listen to our interview View on the wizard files with andrew carden he explains that yes he had all his vintage childhood mego dolls on his desk and every day you would come in and they would be in uh, some unflattering positions up to no good some serious debauchery but he believes that that what was taking place on his desk is the true origin of twisted toy fair theater so there you go really that's the way he tells it but let's keep this list going number six the fruit flies in the lunchroom that seem to have gained group sentience. This, I believe. <laughs> this, I believe. All right. Uh, number five, the ghost of flatulence past. <laughs> Let me take that again here. The ghost of flatulence past that haunts the men's room, which even if you just go in to wash your hands, will cling to you for the rest of the day and make you smell like you just crapped yourself. Oh, boy. Okay, number four. Staffer Mark Wilkowski. Period. <laughs> Poor Mark Wilkowski. Always picking on that guy. All right. Number three, the car in our parking lot that has written on its side, no lie, Maxin and Relaxin. <laughs> it's a very New York thing to have written there. Number two, the Twinkie thumbtacked to the ceiling that's 
been here longer than most of us have. <laughs> it begs the question, do you have junk food tacked to the ceiling in your office and you've never deigned to look up? Everybody, go to the office, tell us what you find, okay? <laughs> and finally here, number one of the top 10 most frightening things about working at Wizard Press, hefty staffer Buddy Scalera lifting his shirt and exposing in the middle of a conversation and with absolutely no provocation why he's called the other white meat. <laughs> I like Buddy, I, but this particular description of him reminds me of Chunk from The Goonies. <laughs> Makes you wonder how many times he had to do the truffle shuffle to get entrance to a staff meeting. <laughs> that was actually pretty funny because they were making fun of themselves. So I, I, I appreciate that humor. It was pretty funny. This was a lot of fun. It felt good to be back and stuff like that. It's been a long time coming. It's been a good almost two months if you count yeah. all the days. We hope we get back to a regular schedule now going forward. If you want to listen to us and check us out, check us out on our socials. Go to Twitter at Wizards Comics. Go to Instagram at Wizards underscore comics you can go to our youtube channel and watch a lot of youtube videos you can go to our t public store and get some merch and if you want to get a hoodie or stickers or what have you speaking of which michael so we actually just sold a shirt recently on our t public store and as promised many moons ago most people probably haven't even seen this post or this promise or heard the episode in a long time but if you buy a shirt from us we will send you a wizard's goodie pack okay so this person got some comics an issue of wizards some stickers so we're just saying get out there represent the show and uh we'll reward you very cool we also have a couple cool things coming up we've we've teased them here and there we're going to be doing the wizards fantasy draft it's on zoom next week yeah clock's ticket on that so if you want to be part of that zoom event it's going to be a great time we already have people signed up there are only eight slots so if you want to get in you can reach out to us wizardscomicspod at gmail.com or at wizardscomics on twitter and wizards underscore comics on instagram you can just dm us so just putting that out there 13th will be here before you know it and then we're also going to be doing a a wizard zoom about the jim lee special we're gonna be doing you know a bunch of different cool stuff what else we got going on yeah last thing is just to keep an eye on our youtube channel because it is october and we are going to be bringing you our coverage of the 1996 wizard halloween costume contest so that will be a video you won't want to miss keep an eye out for it but in the meantime keep your books bagged and boarded This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.